Welcome to Will Watches Corey's Canon, a podcast where my friend Will watches my personal canon of movies. Uh, so what we'll be doing on this show, um, I had gathered uh, a sort of list of films that I felt like were important to me or that I really loved and realized that Will had not seen many of them. Um, and a lot of it was because Will and I have slightly different orientations to film or uh, relationships, histories with film. And when, both, and when Corey says he realized that I hadn't seen those movies, what he means is he made a Google document uh, of all the movies and sent it to me and was like, have you seen these movies? And I had to check off like Anton, whether or not I'd seen the movies. Right. Well, it, through conversations, I started to, to, there were some things that you hadn't seen. And so. you, you knew the type of movies to put on that exactly. list. Um, exactly. So my, uh, the list largely was old horror films, old science fiction movies, um, some kind of just strange outlier 80s films, things like that. Um, those were the most sort of formative and important to me and my uh, love of film. And then I kind of, I feel like I got into more uh, quote-unquote serious movies a bit later. Um, so Will and I both sort of share share a love of film, but uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll allow you to explain. Right, and I, I sort of, st- I've just always been drawn to like drama. And mm-hmm. so I remember when I was like 15 watching Ordinary People, you know. right. And when I was 15, I was watching like Return of the Living Dead. Right. And I just thought <laughs> like Ordinary People was the height of cinema. Still kind of do. Right. Uh, but even when I was young, I didn't want to watch cartoons. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents tell me like they were just like always looking for live action stuff because I just was bored to tears by cartoons. And so, yeah, so my uh, I just feel like sort of predisposed to some of my favorite filmmakers are like Paul Thomas Anderson, Charlie Kaufman, uh, Noah Baumbach, just, you know, kind of indie, mm-hmm. contemporary indie American stuff is, is generally what I'm into. But uh, that doesn't mean I'm not, I'm especially not into other things. Right, I was going to say. I'm predisposed to liking those things. And, and the, the potential tension between these sort of diverging orientations to film is what we hope will make this podcast an interesting listen an interesting listen right and i think like you like you were saying i think that you you weren't intentionally avoiding them your your focus on this other area just i just followed my bliss yeah it just didn't you just yeah. didn't see these other things cuz you weren't you were in a different area of film. So we're just sort of, it's a, it's a double edged thing here. I mean, I'm hoping to sort of, uh, maybe you could say expose myself, uh, to will, um, and my Canon. Yeah. As soon as you expose yourself, uh, (laughs) while I watch your Canon, good things are going to happen. Yeah. I really think that you're going to learn a lot about yourself. I'm going to learn a lot about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so for our first episode, we wanted to tackle Ridley Scott's film Blade Runner. I need your deck. This is a bad one. The worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants. Three males, three females. 
They slaughtered 20 a Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants, manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty, probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman, the Terrell Corporation. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? Never seen a buzzer. I never seen that one. No, so Will watched this movie for the very first time last night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's funny, today I was talking to... Um, we'll go ahead, since this is episode one, there will be... Uh, many references to our friend Gen C. Yeah. So just get used to it, listeners. Because when we I, say that, it's our friend. So I, I generally watch films with our mutual friend Gen C. Right. And I have a lot of conversations with our mutual friend Gen C about films and other things. And at her our, name is Gen C. J E N C Y. Gen C. Just get used to it. Yeah. It's you're going to hear that name. So now you don't have to be name. like, who, what, who, what is a Gen C? Who are they talking about? So um, I was talking to Gen C about why I picked this movie, um, you know, what it was about it that blah, blah, blah. And I realized it's one of those movies that unlike maybe something like Star Wars that I will watch maybe even multiple times a year, um, Blade Runner is not something that I've watched uh, frequently. However, I felt like it was a very important and formative movie for me, at least in the way that it informed my opinions about science fiction And I think it also, for me, when I saw it the first time, was sort of a gateway into a more... How old were you? ...artistic approach to science fiction. I was probably uh, 15, so it was later. You know, I didn't see it, like, at a really young age, but it was one that I had heard of. I'd grown up seeing the the tape and uh, seeing the DVD uh, at places, and was some... For some reason, I was aware already that it was a, an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's story. Um, but uh, and the reason I say that that's strange is because um, Will watched it last night in preparation for the show, and I did not, and have not seen it probably in a year or two, um, which I think is funny since it's supposed to be this, you know, uh, deeply important movie to me. And um, I, haven't, I haven't seen the sequel either. So, well, I want to talk about that later because... Through my recent watch of the sequel, rewatch of the sequel, I should say, uh, I have formed some stronger opinions about that, in fact, that have sort of informed my opinions of the original film. But we'll get to that in a little later. Um, But another thing I I think is important for our listeners to know is that Will and I have also not discussed how he felt about it yet. We did Mm -hmm. not, like, pregame the show. I have no idea what he thought. Um, And so... We're going to find out live on the show uh, what Will thought, what his feelings were, and why he felt that way. Um, So through our conversations, uh, hopefully I can sort of reveal uh, some of my relationship to the film a little bit more. We'll just see how that sort of unfolds as we talk. So um, ladies and gentlemen, Will Underland's verdict on Blade Runner.
Well, here's the thing. I hadn't seen it. I'd always heard about it. It's a cult classic. Um, I, I know, I knew coming in that it had been, I think it had at least one or two Oscar noms in its day. And honestly, I was very impressed with Billy Bob Thornton's performance. I know he wrote and directed it and his Southern accent is uh, spot on. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, he goes full R word and it, and it works. Yeah. So you enjoyed Sling Blade. Oh shit! Did you? Yeah. He, okay. This podcast is ruined. <laughs> no, I was just thinking as I thought of that joke before you said that. This a crossover would be good. Sling Blade, Sl- Sling Blade Runner. Runner. Yeah, you yeah. find out that uh, Billy Bob Thornton was a replicant all along. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's a we could we could pitch that. Yeah. Billy Bob's not doing a lot of work these days. I mean, his last movie was Bad Santa too, so I don't think he's uh, very busy. Okay. Blade Runner. Blade Runner. I saw it for the first time as a 32-year-old man. I'll start with my initial observations as as probably everyone's initial observations of Blade Runner, especially in 1982, I think is when it came Mm -hmm. out. Uh, Visuals. Right. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, Ridley Scott, I guess he'd done an alien film or two before this. Uh, he only did the first one. The first one. Yeah. But I think uh, Blade Runner is uh, exceptional mm-hmm. uh, visually. I did notice that the visual effects were done by old Trumbull or whatever his name is, the guy who did every awesome visual right. movie you've ever seen, yeah. including 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite films of all time, The Tree of Life right. by Terrence Malick. This guy's been making the best visual effects movies for like 50 years for our, our entire lives. Right. For sure. Right. Uh, anyway, uh, so visually it's amazing, especially for 1982. Um, I'll say that, uh, sort of related to what I was saying earlier about my orientation to film being kind of a little bit snobby, um, at the same time, I'll say I am, I find it very, I find it much more difficult to follow like high concept films mm-hmm. where I said this to Jensi last night. I said, it is much more likely that I will understand like the themes of an Ingmar Bergman film on the first watch than to understand the intricacies of the plot of a born movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I am not great at just like on the first watch following right. what the hell's happening in this movie. Mm-hmm. And so Blade Runner or my viewing of Blade Runner, I think was uh, impacted by that because so it was largely you sort of just following the plot. Yeah. It's like, what is happening? Yeah. What, uh, um, and so it's one of those movies that starts with text, mm-hmm. you know, like explaining the concept of the film. Right. Which, I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but but that it's necessary is like, right. okay, this is going to be one where you're going to have to like learn some vocabulary, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, and it yeah. gives you like, it's like, oh, these are called replicants, blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Uh, and it's not that it's super complex. It's just that it's that type of movie. Right, for sure. Um 
So the two dominant first impressions are visually stunning and intricately plotted Mm -hmm. and like you're going to have to actually pay attention. It's not just going to coast by on your empathy with the character's emotions because you have to understand the, the uh, specifics of the plot Mm -hmm. in order to empathize with what's happening. Your connection is sort of uh, reliant on your buy-in of the concept. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, those that's that's my my early impressions. Um, I should say going in, I also, you know, it, it, this movie's unavoidable in sort of like uh, film discourse because mm-hmm. it's so, you know, monumental. Uh, and so, um, most of what I'd heard about this movie was as Blade Runner as an example like a quintessential example of postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely think that is true. Right. Because you you see right off the bat a lot of different styles mm-hmm. coming together. You've got like the noir detective story. You've got futuristic dystopia, all that stuff. But at the same time, you've got like Coca-Cola brand right, flashing right. at you which I want to say more about that later, the advertising and marketing Mm. idea. Uh, Anyway, you've just got this eclectic sort of uh, blending of styles, which is why teachers and and people use it as uh, an example of postmodernism. Yeah, so so those are the sort of first impressions I have. I will say... Um, I think the movie has some things um, as a product of 1982. I think it's coming off of sort of 1970s feminism Mm -hmm. and there's some weird stuff going on with its, with its depictions of women and violence towards women, specifically the leading man's sort of orientation to women and not even necessarily unconsciously. I think there's some things that are like, that are that are intentionally there. Mm-hmm. Um, the city, just the this goes back to the visuals. The the way the city looks is so claustrophobic and overcrowded, and I think this is um, like a like a good film. This contributes and should contribute to our understanding of the meaning of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the replicants are us, essentially. Right. Um, and everyone. Like, I- anyway, we'll get into more substantial things like that as we go on. But uh, I noticed a, a, an emphasis on eyes. Definitely. Um, and, and I think that's a sort of uh, commentary on the state of the soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, eyes as the window to the soul and uh, a a phrase that popped into my head in thinking about the sort of thematic issues is that Blade Runner is a depiction of real souls in an artificial world Mm -hmm. um, a built world right Um, anyway that's that's general impressions Mm -hmm. um, a little bit ambivalent I won't say I loved this movie because I 
I didn't really like, I wasn't, I didn't feel very moved or anything by it. Right. But I, I respected a lot about it. Um, and I was very interested, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of intellectually by it. Right. Um, but it's not something I'm going to like, I'm not going to steal your cannon. Right. This, this will not immediately be part of Will's cannon. I think you, you, you touched on some of the things that, um, I, I have a, an affinity for, um, for science fiction dealing with the, you know, like the, the attempt to understand what it means to be human, um, your idea of, of souls, I think, is very interesting because I think this movie sort of challenges a lot of the conceptions we have about um, what it means to to have a soul and to be a, a quote-unquote human because, right. so you know, something like where we would say, well, you know, something that has uh, memories, that's a human. But in this film, memories can be artificial. Memories mm-hmm. can be constructed. Um something that feels that feels that genuinely feels and has emotions and loves. Um, and these, all the replicants show, um, a lot of emotion and real connection with people and also a self-awareness, um, and a, um, a very intense desire to continue to live. You know, they, they've, they've, they've become aware enough of their, their, um, humanity for lack of a better word uh and they don't want to be you know service uh animals you know they don't want to be tools they don't want to be utilitarian um there's i mean that great scene with roy when he's begging for more life from his creator you know he's basically gone to see his god uh to beg for more life you were made as well as we could make you but not to last the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long and you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. The only moment in this movie that I am always genuinely moved by is Roy's speech at the end, because I think it's very powerful, and the idea that his life, his memories, the impact that he made on the world will be lost like tears and rain. These moments will disappear like tears and rain. Right, and Gen- I think Gen- that... he was saying that was improvised? Yeah, he wrote it right before the scene. Uh, Rutger cool. Hauer wrote it, showed it to Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott was like, okay, great, and then cool. they did it, yeah. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of a lion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost. In time, like tears in rain, time to die. In this movie, the the humans are cold and emotionless, and the these replicants these artificial humans are the ones that are seem to be deep feeling individuals who value life and want to you know continue to exist and 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 um i think it's an interesting you know i think your idea that the replicants are us i think is is spot on because i feel like 
we as a viewer connect more to that because it's more more it's more in line with our own humanity right and the replicants are products of this world mm -hmm. that is so artfully created but it's also you know it's it's visually stunning but not in a necessarily um alluring way it's right. like it's claustrophobic and mm -hmm. and it's it's like an exaggerated sort of new york city yeah you know like it does not you don't want to be there no and but it's it, also but, and they, sh they they really hammer that home too with the you know the the cars that are flying and when they're in the air it's you know it's beautiful there are these bright vibrant displays but then when the cars are on the ground it's like it's filthy it's you know never right. stops raining it's overcrowded down there. It's dirty. Mm -hmm. It's all this, you know, beauty at the top that really means nothing to the people who have to live there on the ground. Right. And right. not only that, I mean, a lot of people have left Earth. You know, they've gone on to different colonies like this. Sure. It's a forgotten place um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's a, it's an ugly world. And the replicants, m much like we live in an ugly world, I don't want to turn this into an environmental rant, but I, I do think it's sort of prescient in its, mm -hmm. in its uh, depiction of an increasingly uninhabitable, uninhabitable world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, and so when we build an artificial world, we also build artificial people. Right. And that's, that's what replicants are. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet that's why I say real souls in an artificial world because, and yet these, these fake people are real because it, it's, it's really kind of a very materialist uh, mm -hmm. take in a good way. It, it suggests that your soul is not some sort of autonomous, supernatural preexistent mm -hmm. thing. It is an accumulation of experience. Right. Um, and, and so, and so the replicants, have as much a claim to a soul as the humans do. Right. Um, yeah. So that's what I say when I mean this movie, or that's, that's what I mean when I say this movie is sort of intellectually mm -hmm. interesting, stimulating. Yeah. I think it, it, it's a movie that uh, really comes to life for me in these kinds of conversations. Um, it's one that is enhanced a lot by um, reading people's uh, evaluations, their takes, you know, scholarship on this movie. And, and, and even just casual conversations like this can make you, you know, want to revisit uh, and, and, you know, think, think deeper about it, I think. Um, I think a very, a very big part of Blade Runner is its awareness of genre. Like we talked about the sort of right. postmodern eclecticism of it. Um, well, and it feels like to me, you can kind of see the, the cumulative effect of taking life on Deckard in the sense that he, at the beginning of the film, wouldn't, I wouldn't say he would consider the replicants retiring them like taking a life. It was a job and, you know, they're not, they're not alive. So what does it matter? But over the course of the film, both in his interactions with, with them and then also his, the, the, uh, development of his relationship with Rachel, he starts to, what is it to take a life? Yeah. Like it what becomes is a life. Exactly. And that's, I think that that's a good thought. It really starts to wear on him by the end. And so much so that 
And then you've got that great moment where Roy saves Deckard's life. You know, like he could have let him fall, but the the inhuman, or yeah, the, the unhuman is more human than the human, even though is he a human? Right, and that's a whole thing too that we can get into. A okay, little bit, but let's do it because the version I watch ends with Deckard finding a unicorn, mm-hmm. like a little paper. origami yeah yeah origami unicorn and you realize because you've seen his sort of daydream Mm -hmm. um i guess i don't think it's a memory necessarily but a some sort of vision of a unicorn and you realize that if someone knows about this random vision that it's manufactured right and so deckard is a replicant which was really cool yeah the ending is very cool. It's just it, because it invites you to speculate on a lot of things. And it's just, it's not a typical ending. It's like in the middle of like something exciting is about to happen. Yeah. And then you that's know? it. I always, I remember the first few times I saw this movie, it didn't even enter my mind that Deckard was a replicant. Harrison Ford was adamant that he wasn't. And well, then that's so, I, w- I read the same thing and it's so funny. And I, I, I think. He is because what it says is that, and this is just like on Wikipedia now, Mm -hmm. uh, Harrison Ford repeatedly said he was not a replicant and it's just, and Ridley Scott has repeatedly said he is. And you can just see that Ridley Scott was telling Harrison Ford that he is not a replicant. What better way to... Because he wants that (laughs) character to... Come to off, believe that truly believing right uh, that he's not like like Deckard actually does yeah because I think know. it would be it might be difficult for an actor to not do like some subtle like nudge nudge wink wink things right. if he knew exactly. that in reality he and was. so to me he has to be a replicant because that is the whole reveal of the ending right like so what, what could the what could the drama of the last scene be if he's not a replicant yeah I I now am in the camp that he so it's it's complicated this issue is complicated by the new film um and uh that's one of the first thoughts i had was like oh wait is he gonna die in like a year or whatever so yeah and that's the thing it it's complicated because you have to then assume if he is a replicant, he's obviously a different kind of replicant that has a longer lifespan. And the theory was he's a Nexus Seven, right? Um, and that is supposed to just like absolutely mirror humans. Yeah. So one thing that well, the only other um, interpretation that I liked that I heard was um, the idea that the acknowledgement of the unicorn is representative of that someone else could possess the knowledge of the unicorn implies that there is a shared humanity amongst all creatures because if someone else could have those dreams, like it doesn't explicitly have to mean that someone had knowledge of this particular dream. It was just sort of an implication that someone else might've had that kind of dream. Maybe a replicant had that kind of dream and that you could have, the same that, that's kinds of dreams. It's like the collective unconscious. Yeah, like which I yeah. I like that too. That's um, cool. I didn't think about that, but that's not totally unconvincing. There, there's like a scene apparently where um, 
the the eyes of the replicants reflect light differently. Yes. And there's apparently a shot in the movie Reddit, where yep. Harrison Ford's eyes do that. I like that there's no, you know, right or wrong answer. I think it's interesting to think about it in both ways. I do think that the 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 unicorn becomes a more powerful symbol if that's what it represents. I think a lot of people have this memory of this movie um, that Deckard and Rachel develop this, you know, really lovely, pure love affair, you know, this sort of like, you know, they develop this relationship. But I often forget that the, the sort of catalyst for that is a scene where Deckard forces her to kiss him. And it's a very, like, it's very aggressive. So I feel like that scene is very intentionally disturbing mm-hmm. um, because we know at this point in the film, we don't have any doubts that uh, Deckard is a human and Rachel is a replicant. Right. And so we see he, you know, he makes advances on her and she refuses and it's like he has this moment of like, wait, this is not a human. Yeah, it I don't have to put up with this. It doesn't matter yeah. mm-hmm. if I rape her. Right. And uh, here's Jensie's pun that she wanted me to make clear to everyone. Replicant is ah, what uh, yes. Deckard is <laughs> in this scene. He's a replicant. Um, anyway, um, it seems very intentional right. that he has this moment of, this is not a human. I can force I can do this. it to do what I want right. to. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And so, and so we're supposed to think about the ethics of that. There's also the whole uh, slave aspect to the replicant. Sure. Plight. I mean, Pris is the, she's a what they call standard pleasure model, you know? Right. Um, right. And, and at the end, uh, Rudger Hauer uses the word slave. Yeah. Yeah. But it just sort of solidifies that reading of replicants as this like race of less than human humans. But Deckard has this moment where he realizes that this is not a human. And so it will do what he tells it to. And if it doesn't, he'll make it. Um, And obviously that is uh, very problematized by the ending of the film. Sure. This, this thing has a soul. This is actually a human. Obviously that's his initial approach to the situation. And I think that the, if we're sort of reading it, this as a, the slow realization that he himself as a replicant also is, is sort of happening at the same time that he's developing genuine feelings for Rachel, which I think help him, that help lead him to that revelation that he cares for this, you know, fake thing mm-hmm. um, becomes a, an awakening for him that a, there's more to being alive than he thought, but also B, he is the same. Um, he is also, he himself He's always, you know, he's felt that he is as alive as anyone. So if he is also a replicant, then he has to reevaluate everything he's ever thought, felt, done. Right. By at, you know, at the end of the at the end of the film, yeah. everything he's done has become mis misled. Did you have any other? Big... Here's I want to get a little meta. Okay. And I want to I want to pose a question, and I okay. want to say, 
why, g- given what we know about copyright mm-hmm. uh, and brand names, why did the Coca-Cola Corporation allow their brand to be prominently featured in a dystopia? Yeah. That is my question. I think that the I think the point that they were trying to make in the film is unintentionally solidified by the fact that a company would agree to do that. Yes. And I think that it's a very complicated thing. Yes. I think that had the had the movie been forced to create fake brands to try to make this point of this, you know, ever present advertising, um, it wouldn't have hit as hard. And I think that it's proof it's proof that what is happening or what would lead to such a level of advertising is already is happening. already happening right. because Coke was like, sure. Because because any publicity is good publicity. Right. Even if the conditions of the film's plot in which you are um, placing your product mm-hmm. suggests that it is the inevitable march of corporate capitalism that leads to the dystopia. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, so sure are they of just like, if we put our fucking logo in this movie, sales will go up, you know, if the movie's decent. And they mm-hmm. knew it would be because it's starring, you know, the sexiest man alive directed yeah, by such Ridley a Scott. Huge star then. It's like it does not matter what the film says. And of course, the writers and directors are probably like, oh, sweet, we got Coca Cola. No, exactly. I think they were like, this is so perfect because now we can really, um, it's going to be even more hard hitting right you know. but yeah but it's just like there's no way and this this is something that uh pauline kale talks about in a her uh critique of a clockwork orange she basically says she like famously hated a clockwork orange mm-hmm. and she basically says it's impossible to critique excess by showing excess mm-hmm. um she goes so far as to suggest Kubrick is sort of delighting in the rape scenes mm-hmm. in, in a clockwork orange. Um, and, and that's, I mean, it's slightly different, but what I'm saying is you cannot, I feel the same way about the Wolf of wall street and, uh, Harmony Corinne's, uh, spring breakers. Mm-hmm. You cannot critique excess by simply depicting it. Right. Because the nature of excess is that it is, sort of uh intriguing and Mm -hmm. and uh we're drawn to it and so the movie can't win by showing coca-cola right it cannot critique it because even if it does you're still thinking about coca-cola it's still still more likely to go buy a fucking coke right after that movie anyway it's one of the most interesting aspects of this movie to me Okay, well, uh, so final verdict on Blade Runner is a uh, a general um, interest, interest, but not a passionate outpouring of. Uh, I was not. I was not moved. Okay, I was not moved spiritually or or mm-hmm. any way. You know what I'm saying? But I was uh, impressed and interested. Okay, cool. I'll take it.
thank you all for for listening uh check out the website willwatcheskoreyscanon.com and uh we'll see you next time and keep an eye posted for the forthcoming sling blade runner <laughs> courtesy of will and Corey.